All right, so this is a solo show for Mutations. Kind of a dry run for some of the work that's coming up in September and October. I'm currently working on a new essay that is going to be published through Revelor Press. I'm working on a number of essays, but this is one of the few that is actually going to go to print. And it's going to be its own little booklet along in the philosophy series. So it's going to be in the philosophy series and it's called Fragments of an Integral Futurism. But what I like about publishing digitally and having an online community to interact with and get feedback from is that, you know, mediums like the podcast and Twitter and even Facebook sometimes, um, it can be very helpful for formulating these thoughts and codifying them eventually in the text. But for starters, um, Fragments of an Integral Futurism is an inspired text. And by an inspired text, I mean it's aspirational. It's not necessarily a well-researched document in which we can move forward with into a new futurist doctrine. And I don't think we necessarily need to do that or should do that. The idea was actually inspired by conversations I've had with many other integralists. When we're speaking frankly, when we're talking shop, when we're exploring a lot of our mutual ideas around what integrality actually means, what this, uh, you know, it's called the participatory turn or uh, the integral turn and the, the kind of the new ontology that Gebser is talking about in his writing or perhaps what Sri Aurobindo was discussing in The Life Divine, a lot of these texts are very charged with a kind of excitement for this new ontology. It's a weird ontology. It's a weird way of being in the world that I find to be very exciting. And integral as a buzzword right now has been... I don't want to say necessarily co-opted. I think it's been fairly diverse in terms of who has appropriated the term and who's been using it where. I mean, it has an organizational term, you know, with Teal Org and Fred Laloux and the work that he's doing. And then it also has a kind of general application to just about everything, you know, integral politics, integral this, integral that. I'm not talking about any of those things. I'm actually just talking about and a kind of underlying phenomenological basis the form and style of thinking and world orientation that we all inherit living as moderns in the early 21st century dealing with the climate crisis and the planetary ecological crisis we have this general feeling of time speeding up of not being able to slow things down. And systemically, structurally, culturally, we have this fascination with technology and innovation and the sort of future forward orientation, which at the moment is beginning to look like it is, grind, is grinding to a halt, right? So I want to look at futurism as a theme that integral philosophy the philosophy of John Gebser and other integral thinkers in the integral movement can, in, in a sense, in a true sense, reclaim, reclaim for itself. And by doing this, 
I think we can make tomorrow energizing and seductive in a way that it isn't currently, in a way that is still reifying some of the same modernist projects. My orientation has always been with working with Gene Gepster's work, right? And working with his underlying focus on how we perceive time and space, right? How do we embody ourselves in the world and what kind of world are we enacting? What kind of time are we enacting? And what kind of spatialization are we enacting in our in ourselves and in our perception and therefore in the cultures that we produce, the economic systems that we utilize, the power structures that we find ourselves in. All of these things have roots and traces to some of the underlying structures of consciousness that we're enacting in the world. So the idea with an integral futurism for me is to really look at time, look at time in the classical sense that the futurists tend to look at with technological innovation, exponential complexity, and so on, and pause all of that and really kind of step back a little bit and reclaim the concept and also the the dialogue around the nature of the time that we're using. What kind of time are we inhabiting? I think futurism doesn't necessarily, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be owned by the techno-futurists of Silicon Valley. I think futurism is, and I'm not hanging on to this too too tightly, I just think it's, it's a fun thing to go into and perhaps an interesting place for integral philosophy to explore having room for, um, it's an interesting word to try to reclaim, and it's an interesting conversation to enter into. A lot of the futurists uh, who I speak with online are really interesting people. I see them talking about ambient technologies and uh, cyborgism and thinking about technology in relation to the ecological crisis. And in general, just, you know, systems thinkers, uh, folks who are talking about cryptocurrencies and peer-to-peer networks, uh, I'm not discounting all of those. And I think using futurism with that terminology is probably a good thing. But I'm much more interested in articulating a futurism that is grounded in an integral ontology that's interested in looking at the nature of the subject in the Anthropocene, right? How the self is blurring into both the technological and the ecological, or bleeding into in some cases. How the ontological shift that we're undergoing right now between the subject and the object seems to be blurring. The technologies, of course, are, are beginning to represent that. If you look at what Kent Bai is doing with the VR podcast, he talks about this all the time as the experiential age, where the subjectivity... Uh, the subjective side of the Cartesian dualism is getting flipped into the objective and vice versa, where we're trying to create experiences now, right? We're, we're an experiential age that's looking back at the subjectivity of the self and wondering about the, subjecti- the subjectivity of other selves, of other cells, literally, <laughs> of other organisms. In the humanities, we're seeing this subjective flip with the what they call the non-human turn or the more-than-human turn, looking at the subjectivity and the agency of non-human organisms. So we're being forced to do this as a whole with the planetary crisis. We're being forced to think about the life worlds of other beings that we have conveniently ignored or not been aware of because of the 
runaway technological and, and capitalistic forces that drive us not to think about those things and those beings. So the world is getting more crowded on the on one hand. Uh, the subjectivity of the self is, is in some sense becoming transparent to the subjectivity of other selves. And that's also happening. And on the other hand as well, the exponential race towards technological innovation and industry and exponential growth in capitalism, right? And the sort of um, late stage digital capitalism that we're in that Douglas Rushkoff talks about all the time. All of those forms of rushing forward are, are coming to a grinding halt. And if they haven't already, um, it's because we don't even realize that their time is over, that literally that form of time is undone and has undone itself. And we're seeing this right now with the burning of the Amazon and and uh, the force, this techno eco ecological and economic forces that are driving what's going on right now in the Amazon with the beef industry um, and so on, all of those things have kind of run their course. So, what is the new self that's emerging, and what is the new time that's emerging, and? How can we lean into the future and begin to listen to it? For me, this is this has been Gepser's emphasis since the very beginning, since the 1940s, that somehow a new ontology of the future, a new self and a new world is beginning to articulate itself through the manifestations of culture and art, etc. And if we can lean into those possibilities, identify their characteristics and qualities, and attempt to explore those qualities subjectively in ourselves in some sense you know anchor ourselves in this new world sense that is a form of futurism right that is it's not a it's not a question of what's next it's a question of what's already here in the present that we can lean into that's already latent and that we can draw forth not only in ourselves but in the environments that we're producing so for me anyway an integral futurism, and why I'm calling it a fragment of an integral futurism. An integral futurism is a new orientation towards time and space that has abandoned this perspectival drive towards directivity, that time has an arrow. It's relating to time in a more whole way. It's relating to the rest of the biosphere and the organisms and beings that comprise it, including ourselves, in a more holistic way, but also in a way of intersubjectivity, right? We're participating in this worlding together with all of these other beings. So what are the kind of ontological shifts that help ground that experience for us as individuals? And then also, how can we produce that as a culture? What can we do to lean into that and gain some, some traction for it? And this isn't something that, again, this is not something that it's not a what's next. It's not a sequence. It's imminent to the present, right? How can we experience as a, this as a world that's imminent to the present where the perspectival ego has been decentered and become porous and transparent to the subjectivities of the rest of the planet, of the rest of the biosphere and of other people, right? And that's always a, a, an issue as well. So, to me, this is the aperspectival world. And coming along with this are some of these other questions that we see in the political sphere, which is not separate here, of, you know, uh, separating and dividing, let's say, the progress-oriented directivity of economic growth and globalization from 
the larger issues that have been systemically a part of that process of, you know, colonization and colonialism, um, systemic racism and so on. These, these are, have been part of the project of, of modernity and part of the ambiguity of modernity has been this attempt to build these new, new, new utopias. So, part of an integral futurism is also a kind of a new sense of the past as a living history that is still present and is not just a history, right? So part of the mission of an integral futurism would be to decolonize ourselves. The aperspectival is, is an attempt to remove the fixation of the spatializing directivity, right? The spatializing directive oriented mental rational perspectival consciousness which has sort of overrun the world with itself it's to it's to dislodge ourselves from that to step back a little bit and then attempt to listen to what we've cut ourselves off from in our own cultures and histories and then also in the people that we have run over in this attempt to modernize the planet at all costs so there's a lot here. There's a lot to unpack. And that's why I'm calling it fragments. It's not going to be a solution to everything. But I think the fundamental basis of this is to, A, capture this new sense of time and space that the integral orientation is attempting to articulate. And then, B, utilize that to say, look, this is an attractive, a seductive, and energized tomorrow that is present. And this is the kind of futurism that we should really be trying to enact, not the Silicon Valley techno-capitalist futurism, which is already reaching a dead end. So all of that is, is a major part of it. Uh, the other fragment of this uh, defining of this new integral ontology, uh, uh, articulating its, its poetics and its attractiveness and its energy and its seductive capacity. It's a, it's, it should be attractive. It should be an attractor, right? There's a new kind of um, uh, imminental gravity here that we are all orienting ourselves around and to, even in the negative sense of the crisis that's happening right now. It's an integral crisis, it demands, it calls forth an integral response. So it's a way to kind of help clarify what's happening in this structural and systemic reformulation that's going on. Another part of this, though, is, I think, comfortably looking at a few different narratives. Um, I've been, uh, one of my favorite essays in recent years has been David Graeber's essay. Um, if I can find the title for it, I think it's called uh, basically, yeah, it's, uh, How to Change the Course of Human History. And, and Graeber has written this uh, very interesting and long essay basically on um, how the narrative that we have about this growth to complexity and greater population and how, you know, human beings in the past lived in, in a more egalitarian way, but as a kind of an Eden because they lived simply and they could afford a more egalitarian society. But as time has gone on and we've moved into the agricultural civilizations, hierarchical stratification has become more necessary, right? There's this kind of growth to complexity and the costs of that complexity have been, you know, the integration of hierarchies in our social systems of power. Um, Graeber is looking at 
contemporary anthropological data and, and research and findings. And a lot of those narratives that we have about the directionality of history, the progress of history, and then some of the, the sacrifices that have taken place in history, um, he's challenging a lot of those and, and, and in some sense turning them over. And what's so interesting about the Upper Paleolithic for Graeber is that they were, these were very complex societies that were both small bands of people who would come together and create these sort of temporary cities in a way or, or, or massive gatherings of people, almost like a burning man in the Paleolithic. And the social structures they would involve in these were, were profoundly complicated. And from the, from the research and the data that we can gather at the moment, were very diverse and flexible and fluid. And you saw a lot of different relations of power that were going on in, in, in very surprising ways. So for Graeber, this, this myth that the agricultural revolution forced us to go this way is being disrupted because here we have earlier examples of complex societies that were highly uh, mercurial and plastic, uh, or I don't know, plasticity. There was a kind of a neuroplasticity, to, to borrow that metaphor from, uh, from brain science, in the way in which we organized ourselves in these, in these uh, very early human societies. And so for Graeber, he's saying it, we seem to be able to have a kind of a dynamism and an inventiveness and applicability with social structures at a very complicated level with a lot of different people in these Paleolithic times. It wasn't some Edenic frozen paradise. It was a very dynamic and lively place. So for Graeber, the question gets flipped. Why did we rigidify as time went on? Why did we begin to lean more and more towards uh, social hierarchies and uh, centralizing power at the top as we move into so-called history? Uh, and can we learn anything from our ancestors for the future? If human beings were once this pliable and adaptable and in some sense, you know, everything at once and able to reorganize society and able to, in, in a certain sense, uh, carry civilization with them in their pockets, right? As a kind of a proto-civilization with these early settlements and early um, gatherings. Why can't we start to think about this today in terms of the future and how we organize human societies in the future? And I love this. This is very Gipsarian. This idea that, you know, as Gipser says, um, you know the archaic structure of consciousness is is this. Uh, we calls he calls it the first structure, but he also says it's synonymous with the integral. That somehow the archaic structure of consciousness contained within it everything that would unfold, and it was all kind of latent and present and innate there. And in Gebser's history of consciousness, you get a kind of unfolding of of these structures and dimensions, which have their own unique way of of relating to not only power but society and time and space that we were talking about earlier, right? The ontology, but in that plurality of the archaic, there's this pliability, and so with the integral, the idea with the integral is that that pliability. Uh, is going to be resurrected somehow. That the narrowing down and the rigidification, which happens in the unfolding of consciousness as we move into this sort of crystallization of the perspectival ego, gets uh, in some sense rewritten. 
that we, we don't have to fixate anymore, that we don't have to rigidify anymore, that the whole living history of the human unfolding story and narrative, this history of consciousness, all becomes co-present and we can bring forth the dimensionalities of the integral human being at will, that all of it can come forward as needed. And so for me, I'm seeing a kind of a parallel and a mirror with what Graeber is talking about with this sense of deep Paleolithic history, the pliability of human social structures, and then our future, the kind of the anthropology of the future that we're talking about here with integrality and this integral futurism. And it, to me anyway, having a much more nonlinear narrative to the unfolding of history and asking these more discerning questions, you know, not that it had to happen this way, that society had to become more hierarchical and structured in this top-down way, but more of why did it get crystallized? Why are we less pliable now than we used to be? And if we had that in ourselves once, do we have it in ourselves today? To me, those are the the far more important questions than reifying the narrative of, um, you know, Western modernization in terms of how history has supposed to have unfolded. So for me, this all has to do with futurism for these, you know, very same reasons. How do we think about tomorrow? How do we think about where we've been, where where we are at the moment and, and where we're going in the future? And how do we think about time in, in a fundamentally different way as a more of a intensity and a relationality of the past, the present and the future? To me, this is the kind of complex thinking that can open up new possibilities for tomorrow and give us what Joanna Macy calls in Sean Kelly's essay um, with Revelor that just came out, an act of hope, not a blind hope that is just sort of naively crossing our fingers for the future, but a hope that understands who we are as fundamental beings. So... If we understand who we are, and if we have a new nonlinear narrative of our own history, opening the past also opens the future. It opens new possibilities for tomorrow. And I recommend, in addition to reading Graeber, um, I've also been reading Bruno Latour and his work on Down to Earth, which is a very similar uh, narrative. He, he's essentially saying that the the project of modernity that we've been running on for the past four or 500 years is coming to a halt. That the trajectory, right? The, The arrow of time moving towards from the local to the global, from small markets to globalized markets and open borders and utilizing capitalism as its, as its means in this industrial society that uh, extracts the resources from the earth, doesn't isn't modeled around sustainability, but around infinite growth. A lot of these socioeconomic models and policies invented since the Renaissance, right? Since the, the rise of modernity, that's coming to an end. And so what we have to do now is to come back down to earth. And I think I mentioned already Ursula K. Le Guin, but her writing and her essays on utopia um, in the Verso Books edition of Utopia are also very essential for thinking about this new style of futurism. She has this great essay called Utop- uh, Yintopia, uh, Yangtopia. 
And it's this idea that, you know, we've already had this Yangtopia for the longest time, this progress oriented, you know, pave over the local to build the global is, you know, the ambiguity of modernity has always been this kind of perspectival totalization a point of view that doesn't exist anywhere, right? It's a, it's a utopia literally means in Roman, a, a non-place. But you also means happiness, right? Just as Zygmunt Bauman mentions that modernity has this inherent ambiguity with itself, that it invents this thing, but it also invents its opposite or its shadow. Um, modernity has always carried this with itself. The perspectival age has always cast this long shadow with itself. And so... The point of view and the perspectival gaze and the event horizon of this this abstract totality that we've been driving the world towards of this utopian capitalism, this utopian modernity of reason is collapsing on itself. But there's more to us than that. There's more to us than there than, than we have ever really acknowledged. And so, like Le Guin is saying, we need a yintopia in the sense of kind of stepping back a little bit and not necessarily being caught up in this drive towards tomorrow. Tomorrow is already imminent. If we actually listen to tomorrow, we have a different relationship with time. We don't have this segmentation, this fear, and this uh, this kind of intensity of, uh, of anxiety in which we don't feel like we're getting there fast enough. We need to, in that, in that sense, to slow down and to listen and to listen to the present because the present speaks about tomorrow. And that's just my, uh, my rant for this solo show this week. Um, you can join us over on Patreon. There are a number of different Patreon salons that are going to be, um, going to be uh announced this week so so stay tuned for that and um i hope to see you on there we have a discord channel and a discourse uh community forum and we host uh, monthly salon calls where we talk about integral futurism and and related books that i mentioned during this podcast uh with not only myself but the guests so if you're interested in all of this and if you'd like to get involved in this somehow um i'd love to have you on there and if you'd like to connect with me personally, uh, my email is also on my homepage. And see you there, guys. Thanks again for listening. As always, stay tuned for more episodes coming in the near future.